Book Fifteen, Chapters Twenty Two through Twenty Seven of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by Saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Fifteen, Chapter Twenty Two. When the human race, in the exercise of this freedom of will, increased and advanced, there arose a mixture and confusion of the two cities by their participation in a common iniquity. And this calamity, as well as the first, was occasioned by woman, though not in the same way. For these women were not themselves betrayed, neither did they persuade the men to sin, but having belonged to the earthly city and society of the earthly, they had been of corrupt manners from the first, and were loved for their bodily beauty by the sons of God, or the citizens of the other city with sojourns in this world. Beauty is indeed a good gift of God, but that the good may not think it a great good, God dispenses it even to the wicked. And thus, when the good that is great and proper to the good was abandoned by the sons of God, they fell to a paltry good which is not peculiar to the good, but common to the good and the evil. And when they were captivated by the daughters of men, they adopted the manners of the earthly to win them as their brides, and forsook the godly ways they had followed in their own holy society. And thus beauty, which is indeed God's handiwork, but only a temporal, carnal, and lower kind of good, is not fitly loved in preference to God, the eternal, spiritual, and unchangeable good. When the miser prefers his gold to justice, it is through no fault of the gold, but of the man, and so with every created thing. For though it be good, it may be loved with an evil as well as with a good love. It is loved rightly when it is loved ordinately, evilly when inordinately. It is this which some one has briefly said in these verses in praise of the Creator. These are thine, they are good, because thou art good who didst create them. There is in them nothing of ours, unless the sin we commit when we forget the order of things, and instead of thee love that which thou hast made. But if the Creator is truly loved, that is, if he himself is loved, and not another thing in his stead, he cannot be evilly loved. For love itself is to be ordinately loved, because we do well to love that which, when we love it, makes us live well and virtuously. So that it seems to me that it is a brief but true definition of virtue to say it is the order of love. And on this account, in the Canticles, the Bride of Christ, the City of God, sings, order love within me. It was the order of this love, then, this charity or attachment, which the sons of God disturbed when they forsook God, and were enamoured of the daughters of men. And by these two names, sons of God and daughters of men, the two cities are sufficiently distinguished. For though the former were by nature children of men, they had come into possession of another name by grace. For in the same scripture in which the sons of God are said to have loved the daughters of men, they are also called angels of God, whence many suppose that they were not men, but angels. Chapter 23 in the third book of this work we made a passing reference to this question, but did not decide whether angels, inasmuch as they are spirits, could have bodily intercourse with women. For it is written, Who maketh his angels spirits, that is, he makes those who are by nature spirits his angels, by appointing them to the duty of bearing his messages. For the Greek word agelos, which in Latin appears as angelus, means a messenger. 
but whether the psalmist speaks of their bodies when he adds, and his ministers a flaming fire, or means that God's ministers ought to blaze with love as with a spiritual fire, is doubtful. However, the same trustworthy scripture testifies that angels have appeared to men in such bodies as could not only be seen, but also touched. There is, too, a very general rumor, which many have verified by their own experience, or which trustworthy persons who have heard the experience of others corroborate, that sylvans and fauns, who are commonly called incubi, had often made wicked assaults upon women and satisfied their lust upon them, and that certain devils, called deuces by the Gauls, are constantly attempting and effecting this impurity, is so generally affirmed that it were impudent to deny it. From these assertions, indeed, I dare not determine whether there be some spirits embodied in an aerial substance, for this element, even when agitated by a fan, is sensibly felt by the body, and who are capable of lust and of mingling sensibly with women, but certainly I could by no means believe that God's holy angels could at that time have so fallen, nor can I think that it is of them the Apostle Peter said, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. I think he rather speaks of those who first apostatized from God, along with their chief, the devil, who enviously deceived the first man under the form of a serpent. But the same holy scripture affords the most ample testimony that even godly men have been called angels. For of John it is written, Behold, I send my messenger, angel, before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. And the prophet Malachi, by a peculiar grace specially communicated to him, was called an angel. But some are moved by the fact that we have read that the fruit of the connection between those who are called angels of God and the women they loved were not men like our own breed, but giants, just as if there were not born even in our own time, as I have mentioned above, men of much greater size than the ordinary stature. Was there not at Rome a few years ago, when the destruction of the city now accomplished by the Goths was drawing near, a woman with her father and mother, who by her gigantic size overtopped all others? Surprising crowds from all quarters came to see her, and that which struck them most was the circumstance that neither of her parents were quite up to the tallest ordinary stature. Giants, therefore, might well be born even before the sons of God, who are also called angels of God, formed a connection with the daughters of men, or of those living according to men, that is to say, before the sons of Seth formed a connection with the daughters of Cain. For thus speaks even the canonical scripture itself in the book in which we read of this. Its words are, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, good, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord God said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became the giants, men of renown. These words of the divine book sufficiently indicate that already there were giants in the earth in those days, in which the sons of God took wives of the children of men, when they loved them because they were good, that is, fair. For it is the custom of this scripture to call those who are beautiful in appearance good. 
But after this connection had been formed, then too were giants born. For the words are, There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men. Therefore there were giants both before in those days, and also after that. And the words, They bear children to them, show plainly enough that before the sons of God fell in this fashion, they begat children to God, not to themselves. That is to say, not moved by the lust of sexual intercourse, but discharging the duty of propagation, intending to produce not a family to gratify their own pride, but citizens to people the city of God. And to these they, as God's angels, would bear the message, that they should place their hope in God, like him who was born of Seth, the son of resurrection, and who hoped to call on the name of the Lord God, in which hope they and their offspring would be co-heirs of eternal blessings, and brethren in the family of which God is the Father. But that those angels were not angels in the sense of not being men, as some suppose, Scripture itself decides, which unambiguously declares that they were men. For when it had first been stated that the angels of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose, it was immediately added, And the Lord God said, My spirit shall not always strive with these men, for that they also are flesh. For by the Spirit of God they had been made angels of God and sons of God, but declining towards lower things they are called men, a name of nature, not of grace, and they are called flesh as deserters of the Spirit, and by their desertion deserted by him. The Septuagint indeed calls them both angels of God and sons of God, though all the copies do not show this, some having only the name sons of God. And Aquila, whom the Jews prefer to the other interpreters, has translated neither angels of God nor sons of God, but sons of gods. But both are correct. For they were both sons of God, and thus brothers of their own fathers, who were children of the same God, and they were sons of gods, because begotten by gods, together with whom they themselves also were gods, according to that expression of the psalm, I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. For the Septuagint translators are justly believed to have received the spirit of prophecy, so that if they made any alterations under his authority, and did not adhere to a strict translation, we could not doubt that this was divinely dictated. However, the Hebrew word may be said to be ambiguous, and to be susceptible of either translation, sons of God, or sons of gods. Let us omit, then, the fables of those scriptures which are called apocryphal, because their obscure origin was unknown to the fathers from whom the authority of the true scriptures has been transmitted to us by a most certain and well-ascertained succession. For though there is some truth in these apocryphal writings, yet they contain so many false statements that they have no canonical authority. We cannot deny that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, left some divine writings, for this is asserted by the Apostle Jude in his canonical epistle. But it is not without reason that these writings have no place in that canon of scripture which was preserved in the temple of the Hebrew people by the diligence of successive priests. For their antiquity brought them under suspicion, and it was impossible to ascertain what of these were his genuine writings, and they were not brought forward as genuine by the persons who were found to have carefully preserved the canonical books by a successive transmission so that the writings which are produced under his name and which contain these fables about the giants saying that their fathers were not men are properly judged by prudent men to be not genuine 
just as many writings are produced by heretics under the names both of other prophets, and more recently under the names of the apostles, all of which, after careful examination, have been set apart from canonical authority under the title of Apocrypha. There is therefore no doubt that according to the Hebrew and Christian canonical scriptures there were many giants before the deluge, and that these were citizens of the earthly society of men, and that the sons of God, who were according to the flesh the sons of Seth, sunk into this community when they forsook righteousness. Nor need we wonder that giants should be born even from these. For all of their children were not giants, but there were more then than in the remaining periods since the deluge and it pleased the Creator to produce them, that it might thus be demonstrated that neither beauty nor yet size and strength are of much moment to the wise man whose blessedness lies in spiritual and immortal blessings, in far better and more enduring gifts, in the good things that are the peculiar property of the good, and are not shared by good and bad alike. It is this which another prophet confirms when he says, These were the giants famous from the beginning, that were of so great stature, and so expert in war. Those did not the Lord choose, neither gave he the way of knowledge unto them, but they were destroyed because they had no wisdom, and perished through their own foolishness. Chapter 24 but that which God said, Their days shall be an hundred and twenty years, is not to be understood as a prediction that henceforth men should not live longer than one hundred and twenty years. For even after the deluge we find that they lived more than five hundred years. But we are to understand that God said this when Noah had nearly completed his fifth century, that is, had lived four hundred and eighty years, which Scripture, as it frequently uses the name of the whole of the largest part, calls five hundred years. Now the deluge came in the six hundredth year of Noah's life, the second month, and thus one hundred and twenty years were predicted as being the remaining span of those who were doomed, which years being spent, they should be destroyed by the deluge. And it is not unreasonably believed that the deluge came as it did, because already there were not found upon earth any who were not worthy of sharing a death so manifestly judicial. Not that a good man who must die some time would be a jot the worse of such a death after it was past. Nevertheless there died in the deluge none of those mentioned in the sacred scripture as descended from Seth. But here is the divine account of the cause of the deluge. The Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for I am angry that I have made them. Chapter 25 the anger of God is not a disturbing emotion of his mind, but a judgment by which punishment is inflicted upon sin. His thought and reconsideration also are the unchangeable reason which changes things. For he does not, like man, repent of anything he has done, because in all matters his decision is as inflexible as his prescience is certain. But if Scripture were not to use such expressions as the above, it would not familiarly insinuate itself into the minds of all classes of men, whom it seeks access to for their good, that it may alarm the proud, arouse the careless, exercise the inquisitive, and satisfy the intelligent. And this it could not do, did it not first stoop, and in a manner descend, to them where they lie. 
but its denouncing death on all the animals of earth and air is a declaration of the vastness of the disaster that was approaching, not that it threatens destruction to the irrational animals as if they too had incurred it by sin. CHAPTER Twenty Six. Moreover, inasmuch as God commanded Noah, a just man, and, as the truthful scripture says, a man perfect in his generation, not indeed with the perfection of the citizens of the city of God in that immortal condition in which they equal the angels, but in so far as they can be perfect in their sojourn in this world, inasmuch as God commanded him, I say, to make an ark, in which he might be rescued from the destruction of the flood along with his family, that is, his wife, sons, and daughters-in-law, and along with the animals who, in obedience to God's command, came to him in the ark, this is certainly a figure of the city of God sojourning in this world, that is to say, of the church which is rescued by the wood on which hung the mediator of God and men, the man Christ Jesus. For even its very dimensions, in length, breadth, and height, represent the human body in which he came, as it had been foretold. For the length of the human body, from the crown of the head to the sole of the foot, is six times its breadth from side to side, and ten times its depth or thickness, measuring from back to front. That is to say, if you measure a man as he lies on his back or on his face, he is six times as long from head to foot as he is broad from side to side, and ten times as long as he is high from the ground. And therefore the ark was made three hundred cubits in length, fifty in breadth, and thirty in height and its having a door made in the side of it certainly signified the wound which was made when the side of the crucified was pierced with the spear. For by this those who come to him enter, for thence flowed the sacraments by which those who believe are initiated. And the fact that it was ordered to be made of squared timbers signifies the immovable steadiness of the life of the saints, for however you turn a cube it still stands and the other peculiarities of the ark's construction or signs of features of the church. But we have not now time to pursue this subject, and indeed we have already dwelt upon it in the work we wrote against Faustus the Manichaean, who denies that there is anything prophesied of Christ in the Hebrew books. It may be that one man's exposition excels another's, and that ours is not the best, but all that is said must be referred to this city of God we speak of, which sojourns in this wicked world as in a deluge, at least if the expositor would not widely miss the meaning of the author. For example, the interpretation I have given in the work against Faustus, of the words, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it, is that because the church is gathered out of all nations, it is said to have two stories to represent the two kinds of men, the circumcision to wit, and the uncircumcision, or, as the apostle otherwise calls them, Jews and Gentiles, and to have three stories because all the nations were replenished from the three sons of Noah. Now any one may object to this interpretation, and may give another which harmonizes with the rule of faith. For as the ark was to have rooms not only on the lower, but also on the upper stories, which were called third stories, that there might be a habitable space on the third floor from the basement, some one may interpret these to mean the three graces commended by the apostle, faith, hope, and charity or even more suitably they may be supposed to represent those three harvests in the gospel thirtyfold sixtyfold and hundredfold chaste marriage dwelling in the ground floor chaste widowhood in the upper and chaste virginity in the top story 
or any better interpretation may be given so long as the reference to this city is maintained, and the same statement I would make of all the remaining particulars in this passage which require exposition, that although different explanations are given, yet they must all agree with the one harmonious Catholic faith. CHAPTER Twenty Seven. Yet no one ought to suppose either that these things were written for no purpose, or that we should study only the historical truth apart from any allegorical meanings, or, on the contrary, that they are only allegories, and that there were no such facts at all, or that, whether it be so or no, there is here no prophecy of the church. For what right-minded man will contend that books so religiously preserved during thousands of years, and transmitted by so orderly a succession, were written without an object, or that only the bare historical facts are to be considered when we read them. For, not to mention other instances, if the number of the animals entailed the construction of an ark of great size, where was the necessity of sending into it two unclean, and seven clean animals of each species, when both could have been preserved in equal numbers? Or could not God, who ordered them to be preserved in order to replenish the race, restore them in the same way he had created them? But they who contend that these things never happened, but are only figures setting forth other things, in the first place suppose that there could not be a flood so great that the water should rise fifteen cubits above the highest mountains, because it is said that clouds cannot rise above the top of Mount Olympus, because it reaches the sky where there is none of that thicker atmosphere in which winds, clouds, and rains have their origin. They do not reflect that the densest element of all, earth, can exist there, or perhaps they deny that the top of the mountain is earth. Why then do these measurers and weighers of the elements contend that earth can be raised to those aerial altitudes, and that water cannot, while they admit that water is lighter and liker to ascend than earth? What reason do they adduce why earth, the heavier and lower element, has for so many ages scaled to the tranquil ether, while water, the lighter and more likely to ascend, is not suffered to do the same even for a brief space of time? They say, too, that the area of that ark could not contain so many kinds of animals of both sexes, two of the unclean and seven of the clean. But they seem to me to reckon only one area of three hundred cubits long and fifty broad, and not to remember that there was another similar in the story above, and yet another as large in the story above that again, and that there was consequently an area of nine hundred cubits by one hundred and fifty. And if we accept what Origen has with some appropriateness suggested, that Moses, the man of God, being, as it is written, learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, who delighted in geometry, may have meant geometrical cubits, of which they say that one is equal to six of our cubits, then who does not see what a capacity these dimensions give to the ark? For as to their objection that an ark of such size could not be built, it is a very silly calumny, for they are aware that huge cities have been built, and they should remember that the ark was an hundred years in building. Or perhaps, though stone could adhere to stone when cemented with nothing but lime, so that a wall of several miles may be constructed, yet plank cannot be riveted to plank by mortices, bolts, nails, and pitch-glue, so as to construct an ark which was not made with curved ribs, but straight timbers, which was not to be launched by its builders, but to be lifted by the natural pressure of the water when it reached it, and which was to be preserved from shipwreck as it floated about rather by divine oversight than by human skill. 
as to another customary inquiry of the scrupulous about the very minute creatures not only such as mice and lizards but also locusts beetles flies fleas and so forth whether there were not in the ark a larger number of them than was determined by god in his command those persons who are moved by this difficulty are to be reminded that the words every creeping thing of the earth only indicate that it was not needful to preserve in the ark the animals that can live in the water whether the fishes that live submerged in it or the sea-birds that swim on its surface then when it is said male and female no doubt reference is made to the repairing of the races and consequently there was no need for those creatures being in the ark which are born without the union of the sexes from inanimate things or from their corruption or if they were in the ark they might be there as they commonly are in houses not in any determinate numbers or if it was necessary that there should be a definite number of all those animals that cannot naturally live in the water that so the most sacred mystery which was being enacted might be bodied forth and perfectly figured in actual realities still this was not the care of noah or his sons but of god for noah did not catch the animals and put them into the ark but gave them entrance as they came seeking it for this is the force of the words they shall come unto thee not that is to say by man's efforts but by god's will but certainly we are not required to believe that those which have no sex also came for it is expressly and definitely said they shall be male and female for there are some animals which are born out of corruption but yet afterwards they themselves copulate and produce offspring as flies but others which have no sex like bees then as to those animals which have sex but without ability to propagate their kind like mules and she-mules it is probable that they were not in the ark but that it was counted sufficient to preserve their parents to wit the horse and the ass and this applies to all hybrids yet if it was necessary for the completeness of the mystery they were there for even this species has male and female another question is commonly raised regarding the food of the carnivorous animals whether without transgressing the command which fixed the number to be preserved there were necessarily others included in the ark for their sustenance or as is more probable there might be some food which was not flesh and which yet suited all for we know how many animals whose food is flesh eat also vegetable products and fruits especially figs and chestnuts what wonder is it therefore if that wise and just man was instructed by god what would suit each so that without flesh he prepared and stored provision fit for every species and what is there which hunger would not make animals eat or what could not be made sweet and wholesome by god who with a divine facility might have enabled them to do without food at all had it not been requisite to the completeness of so great a mystery that they should be fed but none but a contentious man can suppose that there was no prefiguring of the church in so manifold and circumstantial a detail for the nations have already so filled the church and are comprehended in the framework of its unity the clean and unclean together until the appointed end that this one very manifest fulfilment leaves no doubt how we should interpret even those others which are somewhat more obscure and which cannot so readily be discerned 
and since this is so, if not even the most audacious will presume to assert that these things were written without a purpose, or that though the events really happened they mean nothing, or that they did not really happen but are only allegory, or that at all events they are far from having any figurative reference to the church, if it has been made out that on the other hand we must rather believe that there was a wise purpose in their being committed to memory and to writing, and that they did happen, and have a significance, and that this significance has a prophetic reference to the church, then this book, having served this purpose, may now be closed, that we may go on to trace in the history subsequent to the deluge the courses of the two cities, the earthly that lives according to men, and the heavenly that lives according to God. End of Book 15, Chapters 22 through 27. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org.